Hey, She 2.0 listeners, I'm Jack. And I'm Ramona. Uh, Tonight, Ramona and I had the pleasure of bringing Andrea Walsh, who we had on our last episode. Uh, Andrea is an OB-GYN and an advocate for women's health. And uh, we had a really great episode last week, but we had to cut it off because of, well, two things, technology, a windstorm. And we ran out of time, but we cut Andrea off right when she was giving us all this really great intel about the health risks uh, that we are not aware of when it comes to perimenopause and menopause. So Ramona, did you learn a lot from this conversation, (laughs) even though last one was so chock full of information? Like, honestly, as I said before, and I'll say it again, I can talk to Andrea all night long. She's (laughs) just got so much amazing information And I learned, again, so much on this episode, and I hope our listeners do too. Yeah, there's a lot of really great things that Andrea shares with us, and I think it's really important that everyone is aware of them, because it isn't just information about what we have to be aware of, but what the, the resources are and potential remedies. Like, we really don't have to suffer, do we? We don't. So... I was so excited last week, but I'm even more excited this week. So I hope our listeners love it too. And have a listen to Andrea Walsh. Hi, Andrea. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us again. Um, We ran out of time last time you joined us. And we left off on some of the health risks associated with menopause and we thought it might be a good idea to have you back so we can revisit some of the other health risks and a few other things that we'd love to learn from you. Um, So I think the last thing we spoke about was osteoporosis and I'm wondering if we can talk about any other health risks associated with menopause. Sure. Um, So one of the other really big items that needs to be talked about is cardiovascular disease. So um, women who are going through menopause do tend to have a higher risk of heart attacks and strokes. Um, And this can be because of the lower estrogen levels, but also in combination with aging and our lipid levels increasing, our blood pressure levels are also going up. So all of that combined increases the risk of a woman in menopause to have a heart attack or a stroke. Mm -hmm. And what should we be doing to mitigate the risk factors? Is it sort of like basically what we all know we should be doing to be healthy in terms of like (laughs) exercise and eating healthy and those sort of things. Right. So exactly what you just mentioned is keeping up with good exercise and nutrition, healthy living habits. Uh, There is no evidence to suggest that we should be using hormone replacement therapy as a treatment or prevention for cardiovascular disease. So that is not recommended. Otherwise, every single woman that's undergoing the pause would be on hormone replacement therapy so that's not suggested at this time does it is there i've i've read somewhere that it could also potentially 
be dangerous for some hormone replacement therapy in relation to cardiovascular is should be we we be worried about that when we're considering HRT? Yes. So that's on the on the flip side of it. So really, because they don't know the exact mechanism of why menopause increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, um, it's hard to say what is actually happening. But we do know that with hormone replacement therapy, that there is an increased risk of blood clots in your legs and in your lungs, um, in your head, which would be a stroke in your brain, um, as well as a heart attack. And, and that's because of the estrogen effect. Um, but because it's at a supplemental level, those risks are, do exist. So we counsel every single patient about those risks when we're having the discussion about hormone replacement therapy. Okay. Can I just jump in and say one thing I learned about cardia, um, what would you call it, like a cardiac incident in women versus men, mm -hmm. um, which I found really surprising, Andrea, is that um, women don't present the same as men when it comes to a heart attack. And I read a really disturbing article last year from a woman who got up in the middle of the night and felt sick to her stomach and threw up and came back to bed. And, you know, there was no impetus. There was like, you know, she didn't think it was the flu. She hadn't eaten anything that they could determine. And her husband was smart enough to say, if there's no sort of outlying factors, we should take you to the ER. And sure enough, she was having a cardiac incident because women present so differently with cardiac uh, than men do. And we don't get necessarily the arm pain or the chest pain, we'll, we'll get nausea. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, given that you're, you're, we're talking about this being an issue with women in this age range, um, I think it's really important that women read up on that and understand how, how a heart attack can present for women. Yeah, what you're saying is exactly true. You know, we have to be cautious because we don't want to encourage every single woman who feels nauseous or is responding <laughs> to, to the ER for a cardiac workup. Um, but you're right. If, if the picture just doesn't seem to come together, your symptoms don't seem to be um, specifically relating to anything that you've done that day or you haven't been around anybody who's sick, you haven't eaten anything weird and you just feel really off, uh, but you're, you can't really pinpoint what's going on, it's a good idea to get checked out because we don't have, women can have the typical symptoms of a heart attack, but they can also not have the typical symptoms. So like you're saying, the radiating pain to the shoulders or feeling like an elephant is sitting on your chest or chest pain, they may not have those symptoms. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I didn't mean to interject there, but I, it just made me think of that. It's, it's another thing yeah. we don't think about as women. We sort of take for granted yeah. that the symptoms present the same. Absolutely. Okay. And on an annual basis, is there anything that, you know, we should be mindful of with our GPs in terms of following our cardiac health, like from a blood work perspective or any of those things that we should keep in mind when we're in menopause? Well, there are routine guidelines for um, getting certain tests done and your general practitioner or your family doctor will know all of those guidelines. 
so getting diabetes screening every three years, getting your lipids tested every three years, those kind of guidelines to make sure that um, those levels are normal. Um, but seeing your doctor each year, going over any new symptoms, they will check your blood pressure as well because that's a huge factor, um, as well as taking into account family history. So if we know that you have a significant family history of cardiovascular disease or family members that have had heart attacks, then that should be on the radar. Um, again, um, besides managing blood pressure uh, and sugar levels, um, exercising and eating healthy, all those things that we've talked about before, and making sure your weight is normal and all of those okay. things. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so we've covered osteoporosis and, um, <laughs> and cardio. <laughs> yeah. What else should we be mindful of as we enter menopause? Um, so one of the other things is um, cognitive decline. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. And that is so... <laughs> and I know we kind of mentioned that before. But... I was literally yeah. just saying before you got on, there are just some days where I'm feeling brain dead. Mm -hmm. And please explain this. I've, done, I've been actually part of a research study myself. Oh, wow. Um, because I've had an overectomy. Um, I actually share that with you. I'm, I plan to share it with our listeners as well. But I am curious to hear your thoughts and share with our listeners because a lot of women feel like they're going into dementia or that they have dementia or something is significantly wrong with their brain when they go into menopause. And I'm one of those people. It's uh, been better, but initially it was pretty mm -hmm. weird. Yeah, and this is again another topic where we don't exactly know the mechanism or what we call the pathophysiology behind why this happens in menopause. Um, it's obviously related again to the decline in estrogen. Um, but it's unfortunate we women experience memory loss and sometimes like you referenced to uh, to a point where it is levels of dementia um, there have been a lot of studies done in this area and they can't say for sure that uh, menopause or hypoestrogenic state increases the risk of dementia However, there does seem to be an association. Uh, when they have given women um, hormone replacement therapy, it hasn't necessarily proven to decrease the risk of dementia. Um, so it, it's really hard to make that exact association. So it's hard to know if it's just a coincidence that those two things are happening together or whether there's a direct association. Just like cardiovascular disease, it has not been recommended to use hormone replacement therapy to prevent dementia. Mm -hmm. Right. And should as, um, as patients and should we be taking anything that, that could help us with our memory? Like, I don't know, I guess it would probably be more on like a 
a natural level like I know a lot of people take ginseng or like things like that are those beneficial Mm -hmm. um I honestly don't know anything that is specific to help with that um often a lot of the patients that are having symptoms like that tend to see a neurologist for a workup to make sure there isn't any underlying medical issue for why they're having uh, those symptoms and to try and target, you know, what is exactly happening neurologically. Uh, So usually the neurologist kind of takes over from that point uh, for any sort of management of those specific symptoms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I find this whole thing, this sort of uh, memory loss fog thing, very frightening, to be honest, because like I have read some articles that they are linking menopause to Alzheimer's and, um, you know, it it feels like a very slippery slope. Like, you know, you, Mm -hmm. you lose your keys, you lose your phone, you lose everything. If you're like me and Ramona (laughs) and most women, um, I can literally, I have called my husband screaming at him, asking him where my phone is while I'm on it. So, I mean, we've all gone through that, right? We've gotten halfway through a movie or a book and realized we've seen it or read it, but we laugh about it and, you know, we laugh about it being menopause, but it is kind of frightening because I tend to look at it as just a phase, like it'll come back. But I don't know, is that a reality? Will it come back? Or or like to Ramona's point, or do we have to start supplementing and doing some sort of exercises, lots more Sudoku's? Like, what do we have to do? <laughs> yeah, well, I honestly don't think that there is um, a cure for that. I think it doesn't mean that you'll necessarily continue to decline. You may have some memory loss and it gets better as your body kind of stabilizes through menopause, um, or it can get progressively worse, or it can just stay the same. So um, it's variable from person to person. So I don't think that it's necessarily, you know, you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life and it's just going to get worse and you just have to deal with it. It's not, it's not necessarily like that. And I've seen people who are more in, as you put it, the fog while they're undergoing the transition into menopause. Once things have stabilized with the hormones and they're not going through the whole cyclical changes, then um, things get a little bit better for them. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's a possibility that the fog, yeah. the fog will lift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, anything else we should cover with health risks? Um, well, you know, I think we talked a little bit about like, the vulvar changes. Oh, um, yes. In terms of the skin changes. Um, you know, uh, lichen sclerosis or some of the risks of, of not getting your um, vulva checked out um, to make sure that there aren't any skin changes that could be malignant or cancerous. Um, so that's one thing that we did uh, talk about. Um, we also t- referenced to risk of uterine 
cancer or uterine um, hyperplasia, which is an abnormality of the tissue inside the uterus, what you would normally shed when you have a period. And, um, and that can be, usually it's determined first by having postmenopausal bleeding. So if you've already gone through menopause, haven't had a period in 12 months, but then after that point, you do have some bleeding or spotting, then, you know, the first thing that we want to make sure is that though that tissue inside the uterus is normal. So that's a definite health risk as well. Is that something, Andrea, that you um, determine with a pap smear or like, how would you ask your doctor to help you with that? So there are two things that we usually do when someone presents with postmenopausal bleeding. We would get an ultrasound to look at the thickness of the lining. Uh, so we have a specific thickness that is normal for a postmenopausal woman, which is very thin, right? Because they're not um, having es higher estrogen levels, which is what grows your lining to get ready for a pregnancy. So it's normal in a postmenopausal state to have a very thin lining. So it is encouraging if we do an ultrasound and see that the lining is thin, that everything is normal. We do also take the next step, though, and do what's called an endometrial biopsy. Uh, this can be done in the office, and it is using a small, um, almost like a small straw-like uh, device to go through the cervix into the uterus, and it does almost do a little scraping of the tissue to collect it, and that gets sent off to pathology to test it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so what will, sorry, what exactly will that tell us? Like when we get, if, if that procedure is done. So the pathologist can tell us if the tissue that is collected is normal or whether it is hyperplastic, which um, what that means is that it's precancerous essentially. Um, so if it's not taken care of, it could develop into cancer or, Malignant, which it means it's already cancer. So it, it could be malignant. Okay, so that's something um, I'm just curious about this because um, I've been postmenopausal for a couple of years. Uh, I've, you know, I, I've had painful sex, and you know, we talked in our mm -hmm. last episode. This is part two of our last episode, um, but mm -hmm. I've never heard it suggested to me that I get this sort of test done. And I know that you know you're such an advocate for women's health. Is this something you suggest women go to their doctors and ask for, or is there a certain time we should go? Like, are certain things we should look for and then ask about it? I mean, kind of like the mm -hmm. whole thing with the cardiac thing. You certainly don't want everyone running to their doctor mm -hmm. for a test, but are there signs that would um, present themselves where we should say, okay, now we should go ask for this procedure? Yeah, so if you are menopausal, and so again, 12 months with no period, and all of a sudden you've started to have bleeding, then you need to bring that to your doctor's attention. Um, and that's when it needs to be checked out. Okay. So I, there are a lot of women that will say to me when they come in for their annual, I will specifically ask them, have you had any vaginal bleeding? And they'll say, oh, well, yeah, I had like, you know, a few months ago, I had a little bit of a light period. And then, 
you know, last month I had a little bit of spotting, but I just figure, you know, that's just, I'm just getting a few little extra periods. It's fine. And they really write it off. They ignore it and they don't think it's anything to be worried about. And in most cases it's not, but if you're the one that does have uterine cancer, you obviously want that to be diagnosed and taken care of. Um, so it's important, as we spoke about in the last session, it's important for your doctor to be asking you these questions during your annual visits, but it is also important for you to tell your doctor anything that is different from what you've been having. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. Which a lot of the times we don't do. <laughs> well, that, right? that is the big problem that I think women have in general. It isn't just that we don't understand what's happening with our bodies. It's we don't know the questions to ask. And that's why um, it's so great to have you on, Andrea, because like Ramona and I have struggled you know, we're learning the information that we're missing by meeting with experts like yourself. But if we were just to walk into a doctor's office without this podcast, I, I wouldn't know what to ask for. I might say, you know, I'm feeling a little grumpy these days, uh, ragey and sex is painful, but I wouldn't know what to ask for. And therefore, you know, I could be missing, we could all be missing out on, on some of these symptoms and issues that we should be aware of. So I think this discussion is super important for that reason. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, there's other one other topic I do want to revisit with you. And that is we did touch a little bit on the I'm going to mispronounce it again, but genitorinary. Urinary, yeah. Good try. <laughs> Symptom DSM, um, which does focus around the vaginal area, the vulva, mm -hmm. the urinary tract. All of that is affected when we're in menopause. Yes. And we did touch on lubricants as one of the options for women to use to help whether they're, you know, if they're experiencing painful sex. But there are some other treatment options that we didn't touch on that I think are important for women to hear. Um, could we chat about a few of those? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, we didn't really get into it too, too much with the last podcast, but um, we talked about the lubricants being more similar to our natural production. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is what is most effective for intercourse, for painful intercourse or dyspernia, as it's also called medically. Um, but the moisturizers are beneficial for daily use. You know, when you feel like there's just a lot of dryness and itchiness and burning and, and, you know, it's, important to know that this is the first line treatment for all of these symptoms. So um, as we talked about before, there are a lot of skin changes that are happening on the vulva and as well in the inside of the vagina too, as those estrogen levels drop. Um, and with that can come all of these symptoms, the dryness, the itching, burning, sometimes even some bleeding. Um, as well as urethral symptoms. So that's where the urinary part comes into play because it can, the urethra, which is right above the vaginal opening there, 
is also affected by this lower estrogen level. And it can have the same um, symptoms, the burning, um, the irritation, especially when you're when you are urinating. So it's important to be aware of these things and then just try the first line things. So we want to start with the easiest things. So we mentioned the lubrication for intercourse um, and then moisturizers are really good for, you know, in between. So those would be like, and then the lubricants are like KY jelly, Astroglide, and the water-based ones are the best to use in terms of the lubricants. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now we know you're not attached to any specific brand, but do you yes. have ones that you tend to gravitate to in terms of their quality and and that clients seem to really like using? Um, I find that women are equally as happy with replens as they are with Vagisil. I think those are the two that I've really been noticed the most that women have used. Um, I don't think that there's one, honestly, that has had greater results that I've heard of. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, and I think it's important to mention again, that when we do have these changes and we're concerned about how we're feeling, we need to bring it up to our doctor uh, because these scary things need to be rolled out first um, to make sure that we can just go ahead with the first line conservative management before doing anything else. Mm -hmm. And I know we've, we've touched on hormone replacement therapy. We haven't really talked about it yet. Mm-hmm. And that's a longer discussion. And, and mm-hmm. I know that some women, including myself, aren't able to use HRT. So we, mm-hmm. we do want to start with those, you know, first line products as much as we can. And, and, and one of the other things I've heard about is like pelvic physio, um, dilators, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Do you know anything about those that you might want to share with our listeners? Yeah. So Exactly what you touched on. Not everyone is a candidate for um, hormone replacement therapy. Um, Before we get into those other alternative um, treatments, I think just touching on what the best treatment for vulvar symptoms in terms of hormone replacement therapy is. So when women mainly have vulvar symptoms and they don't have systemic symptoms that they're concerned about, but they're just really uncomfortable and they're having a lot of pain with intercourse. They've tried the first line therapy of lubricants and moisturizers, and that's not improving. Uh, The next thing we would do is vaginal estrogen. Okay. So um, even, even patients who are not good candidates for hormone replacement therapy can often use vaginal estrogen. Okay. Okay. So and is that yeah. that can be used externally and internally, correct? Yeah, depending on, on what type you're using. So for internal and external use, the cream is actually best um, for that reason, because you can also use it on the outside. Um, if you're using the tablets or the ring, it's harder to 
actually use that on the outside. So some women have to, if they're using the ring, then they can just use some cream on the outside as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, some women try that and they're either, you know, I would say the majority of women actually have really good results from that. And there aren't a lot of women that have significant side effects. Uh, but if, you know, you do have a woman that is not responding well to that. Um, or, you know, some women feel like the cream burns a little bit and yeah. they don't really love the way it feels or it just feels messy and they don't want to do that. Some women are very uncomfortable with actually doing anything down below to themselves. And that's right. the other thing that, you know, is really important to bring up. Um, some women don't want to put, you know, cream on themselves. They don't want to put anything inside their vagina. They don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, and so sometimes those patients are better to try pelvic floor therapy. Um, they wouldn't necessarily be great at doing dilators either because that would be something that would do on, on their own. And they wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. So pelvic mm -hmm. floor therapy is really the next step for those women. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and with the estrogen creams, mm -hmm. does that increase our risk for like any sort of like um, pelvic or uterine cancers at all, like cervical cancer or anything like so, that? So um, there, we do we do say that there is a slight risk. However, um, it has been proven through multiple studies that we do not have to give progesterone, which is the protective hormone for the uterus. We do not have to give it with vaginal estrogen. And that's because there isn't enough of a systemic absorption um, that it would create an increased risk of uterine cancer. So sorry, the progesterone is the issue there? No, the proge progesterone's actually protective. So if I were to give you um, estrogen going through your whole system, um, I if you still have a uterus, I have to give you progesterone, and that helps to protect the uterine lining. Um, okay. But we do not have to do that with vaginal estrogen. We do not have to give the progesterone. So that demonstrates that there is a really low risk. Okay. Okay. I'm taking the estrogen um, cream. Uh, I think I mentioned this in the last episode. It's Vagifem, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not messy. And it, it, uh, it is something Good. I had to take every night for a couple of weeks. And then I'm down to two nights of like two days a week. Mm -hmm. um, yep. I was concerned though, like to Ramona's point, I was concerned because I am postmenopausal of introducing estrogen back into my body. But mm -hmm. my understanding from my doctor is the, the levels are so low, mm -hmm. they don't present yes. a risk. Correct. Correct. Right. That's yeah. good to know because I didn't really think I was a candidate, candidate because of my cancer history. And my cancer mm -hmm. wasn't hormone receptive. Mm -hmm. um, but I tend to still avoid anything mm -hmm. that's got hormones in it, right? Yeah, and with, with patients who have had a history of cancer, I always like to have direct communication with their oncologist because mm -hmm. 
for the very reason that you just brought up. We don't know if it's a hormone sensitive cancer, uh, what their thought process is on giving vaginal estrogen and open up that communication so that we can try and figure out the best thing uh, mm -hmm. to help the patient. Because I think often a lot of oncologists even just think, you know, oh, it's not safe to take any estrogen products and they'll just say no to it right away. But when right. there's more direct communication with the gynecologist and you can explain the, the limited amount of systemic absorption, et cetera, then often you can come to some sort of conclusion. Okay. Okay. So this sort of goes back to the same thing Ramona and I have always said to, you know, we're representing many different opinions here and trying to give yeah. women as much information as possible, but you certainly do have to consult your healthcare practitioner before you, know, you try anything, especially because they, they have much deeper knowledge of your history and you, we don't know what those, you know, what those complications could be. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that also includes regardless of hormone replacement therapy, or even if you're using something like homeopathic or something like a, from your naturopath, they, you should still always consult your doctor, mm -hmm. especially if you have a history with cancer or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Now, yes. Now, I guess we've we talked about the topical or, or estrogen creams, and then you mentioned systemic estrogen. Sorry, mm -hmm. am I mispronouncing everything? No, but, no, um, no, you're saying it um, So that would be more so if you are a patient who's experiencing a lot more like aggressive symptoms of menopause. Is that correct? Is that when you would sort of use yeah. that? Yeah. So patients who are experiencing some of the symptoms we discussed in the last podcast. So a lot of hot flashes, insomnia, mood changes. And the key point to make is that these patients are having difficulty functioning. They cannot perform their daily activities mm -hmm. because of these symptoms. So, you know, we want it, we want to really keep that in mind because um, having, you know, the odd hot flash or feeling uncomfortable sometimes is not necessarily warranting taking hormone replacement therapy because that does come with a whole other set of risks. Right. Um, so, you know, just like anything else, if, if it's tolerable and you can still get through your day, you can still function, um, then hormone replacement therapy is not necessarily the best thing. Uh, but some women just can't even get through the day because of these mm -hmm. symptoms. And they may also have vulvar symptoms, but they have these systemic symptoms um, that require treatment uh, in a different way than the uh, vulvar symptoms. So that would be um, an oral hormone replacement, which means uh, a tablet or a capsule that you swallow. Um, or a patch, okay, um, and then there are some topical creams too that absorb through the skin, mm -hmm. so, but I'd say the main ones are the um, capsules and um, patch. 
I've definitely heard of the patch and I, I heard it from someone who is like me postmenopausal, and she said it was a game changer mm-hmm. patch. So that's definitely something I'd like to look into because, you know, I'm about three years postmenopausal and, and my symptoms are still alive and well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so like a little yeah. relief would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, with, with hormone replacement therapy, because there is that increased risk of like we touched on the cardiovascular, um, side effects, uh, so heart attack, stroke, um, cause it, it does essentially increase your risk of clotting, which is where that comes from. Um, so we, we want to always start with the lowest dose and, if that is effective, we stay at the lowest dose. If it's not effective, we can slowly increase dose by dose. Um, and then we want to touch base every six months to a year. And oh, okay. Yeah. And rethink about whether we need to continue doing this or whether it's time to wean off. So, okay. yeah, because at some point, you have to get off of the hormone replacement therapy and right. you're going to go through some of those changes. So it's essentially somewhat delaying the inevitable, but it, it can make it a little more gradual and help um, so that it's not so drastic in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then I sort of see it that way too. Like it is a little bit delaying the inevitable, but it's going to happen, yeah. right? Like, right. <laughs> but right. for people who suffer so miserably, they just need that relief, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one last question, and then we'll wrap it up here. Um, <laughs> You're full of questions you, tonight. <laughs> I am. Um, is laser therapy? Uh-huh. Do you... Do you ever recommend that for your patients? And can, sorry, Ramona, can you explain what you use laser therapy for and what it is? Because I don't know that everyone's like maybe researched it or even know what the application is for. Because I think this is such an interesting one. Yes. Go ahead. I'm uh, going to put you in the hot seat on this one. Well, I'm going to let Andrea. <laughs> I've just heard it from what I Chicken. understand. It's like a laser treatment. Uh that you use in your vagina and Mm -hmm. it it basically I think you're you're I don't know why I'm fumbling through this but like I think it like burns the cells to promote regrowth where you have more lubrication how did I do you did (laughs) did great Dr. Ramona (laughs) you can edit this out right (laughs) so I will I'll preface this by saying that I don't do laser therapy, so I'm not a physician. Uh, there are specific physicians that have been credentialed and trained to do the laser therapy treatments. Um, it is also not FDA approved at this point, so that's also something to keep oh, in mind. Okay. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, as Ramona mentioned, um, it is a laser that um, does burn um, or injure the tissue and that promotes remodeling and regrowth of that 
uh, tissue um, that and essentially allows it again to try and grow back to how it used to be. Uh, so a little bit thicker, healthier, younger, because it's supposed to be new tissue. So that's really the thought process behind it. Um, you get it done three times every, I believe it's four to six weeks. Um, that is the proposed treatment. Um, but there have been some bad side effects as well, uh, which I think is why it's not FDA approved and requires some more uh, research and testing at this point. Uh, you some say people what's... have had some... Oh, sorry. I was sorry. just going to ask you what some of those side effects are. Yeah. So women have had some bad burns um, or some scar scarring that has been quite painful, um, almost like scar tissue uh, production. So yeah, it's not, it's not perfect at this point. I think it has um, a lot of potential, uh, but I think there still need to be some um, kinks worked out. You know, I don't think it's not at the point where, you know, everyone is getting um, injured from it. Uh, I think the numbers are still quite low uh, of the negative side effects. Um, so that's why people are still doing it. Okay. okay. That's really good to know because I actually didn't realize um, what the health can, like the um, side effects were for that. I just figured that was a, like a no brainer. You just go in and you're good as new. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I Yeah. Well, hopefully at some point that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I can see the burning. Like, I mean, any sort of laser treatment does come with some, mostly comes with pain. Yeah. And having that pain up there just, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good yeah. to know. Well, and I think, you know, I think this has been such a great episode, even just for me. I mean, I know I knew some of this now with some of the reading that I've done, but I'll be mm -hmm. honest with you. And I think I've mentioned this before. I had one appointment at a menopause clinic. Um, when I was first in menopause and I was told that I was recommended some vaginal moisturizers to try um, and that they would likely avoid any sort of like hormone therapy because of my cancer history. Um, and if that didn't work, that my only other option would be laser therapy. That is it. We did not talk about topical estrogen. We did not talk about pelvic physio. I knew nothing of pelvic physio until I was talking to my sister and she mentioned that she had gone for it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really helpful. And mm -hmm. that's when I started talking to a pelvic physiotherapist. So, mm -hmm. you know, knowledge is power, right? And so I hope Absolutely. someone's listening to this and hearing all the options that there are mm -hmm. some of these, which I haven't tried yet. And I'm excited to try to see if they help me. Right. Yeah. 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 There's, there's one more, one more medication that I didn't get an opportunity to mention yet. And it's a, a newer medication and um, the, the brand name is Osfina, but it's um, Ospimafim. I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> <laughs> A difficult name. Um, 
but it's actually um, a selective estrogen later or a CIRM medication. And it is very specific for the vagina. So it's an agonist for the vagina. So what that means is it will stimulate the estrogen receptors in the vagina. So act like estrogen would. Um, but it is not, um, or I should say that breast and endometrium are not sensitive to it. So it's an oral medication, but it does not increase the risk of breast cancer or uh, uterine cancer because it's not stimulating those estrogen receptors. So even though it's an oral medication, it is not, it's very specific for the vaginal estrogen receptors. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And is that available in Canada? It's not, it's a prescription, I would imagine. It's a prescription. Um, You know what? I'm not sure if it is available in Canada. I would think so. Um, I'm looking to whether it is or not. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we'll follow up on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I would have to say that I thought I learned a lot the last time we spoke, but this time definitely learned even more. <laughs> but it's hopeful. <laughs> it's hopeful to hear this kind of information, Andrea, because um, there's a lot of women out there who like us feel like, you know, we just have to sort of suffer in silence, but it's great to know, you know, it's great to know there's options, but it's really important to know that there are things we should be paying attention to when it comes to our bodies. And there are some health risks. Like I don't think, you know, it's a wise idea to just think you're going to sail through perimenopause and menopause and, and just take Mm -hmm. it for its face value. Like there's so many things like Mm -hmm. you said, health risks to look out for. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Ramona and I've talked about this several times, like we've never been told other than, you know, you're in menopause or you're in perimenopause, we've never been told to look out for any particular risks or anything. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of astounding that women aren't told this information. But I do think that's starting to change. I'm seeing more and more talk mm-hmm. in the media um, about the pressure being put on the healthcare industry to talk to patients about menopause, perimenopause, and how to talk to them. Um, mm-hmm. but also, you know, just in these conversations alone, we're helping to open up that dialogue, which I think is super important. Yeah. And, you know, I think the other important thing is, which I hope a lot of people have grasped from and everyone's situation is very different. So, um, like Ramona, she has a, a cancer history, you know, that all of those things need to be taken into account. And, and that's why you need to have one person like the physician kind of bring the whole picture together and say, well, you are a good candidate for this management or you need this testing. And so um, it's, it's really difficult to just tell women like, this is what you have to do um, because it's very different from person to person based on their medical history, family history, their specific situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough. I think, you know, we we really enjoyed the last episode that we did with you. And and again, we, we had to cut that off. But, you know, we've been mm-hmm. speaking all week since that episode about how important that information is. 
and and we knew you had so much more to say so thank you so much andrea for joining no us problem. again thank <laughs> you and no problem. Uh, happy to be here well, great, because we still have a lot of questions, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll find more for you. <laughs> Absolutely. So thanks for joining us. And, I, and Andrea Walsh is our, our resident expert, and she'll be joining us again and again and again, because the questions <laughs> never seem to stop. So thank you, Andrea. No problem. Thanks for having me.